Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us with a scripture reading and a prayer. I'd like to begin with uh, a reading from Ephesians 5, uh, 8 through 14. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness, rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Good and gracious God, we do ask your blessings upon us that we might leave our sins behind, these deadly sins um, that we commit, that we choose. And we ask you to lead us into your light, that you might wake us from this sleep of sin. Um, And so bless us today as we talk about this waking, uh, this, uh, this light that you provide. And we ask all these blessings through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amendment. Thank you so much, uh, Father Nagel. Well, today is today's Friday. Um, when we're recording this, it's a first Friday, and it's the feast of Pope Saint Gregory the Great. And uh, Pope Saint Gregory the Great actually plays a part in this section of Father Spitzer's book that uh, Father uh, uh, Saint Gregory, uh, Pope Saint Gregory the Great, was the one who sort of codified in a way that um, brought forward these eight deadly sins that St. Thomas Aquinas reflected on, et cetera, et cetera. So he makes an appearance. He makes an appearance in, in this section of the book. But um, in addition to that, I, I just thought it might be interesting to hear your reflections, fathers, on the place of the, the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ, the uh, Supreme Bridge Builder, the Pontifex Maximus, the Servant of the Servants of God, all these different titles of, of the Pope, of Pope Francis, of the, of the Bishop of Rome. Um, the successor of St. Peter, right? I, I just used the whole bunch, right? <laughs> Father Lewis is like, when's he going to say that one, right? <laughs> but let me ask you, uh, fathers, I just got a question. And that would be, in in what way has popes, how way have popes influenced your own spiritual journey? And whether that's a journey in, in the life of faith, the journey into the seminary, your time in the seminary towards the priesthood, and and now as a priest, I'm just really interested in the part that popes have played in your own spiritual formation and in your own journey as a priest. And so, Father Lewis, since I'm looking at you, well, um, I get you know the three living popes that that I've known in my life. You know, you know, I say living popes. You know, they were the popes who were the pope in my lifetime: uh, Pope John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, and then Pope Benedict, and now Pope Francis. You know, I, I didn't really kind of give much thought to it as a kid because, well, I'm I'm a kid. I'm not like, and plus we didn't have the internet, so it's not like I can. What did the Pope say today? And it's instantly there. Uh, but when I would hear, you know, through my pastors uh, at the parish, kind of, you know, something about Pope uh, Pope John Paul or something, what it kind of maybe did for me was in a in a vague way, maybe in a general way, as a kid and a youth, was kind of set the tone of kind of. What uh, maybe what the Catholic uh, ethos is supposed to be, or what the Catholic faith is supposed to look like, and then that would be crystallized more concretely in maybe things that the popes actually say. But for my personal kind of engagement with what's going on with the papacy and who the pope is, didn't really begin until Pope Benedict. But in much the same way, like so, here's here's like kind of the role model, or maybe what I thought should be the role model of Christian living. So, so as he teaches and as he apparently prays and lives. You know that's that's good for me. That's a good pl- uh, 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 place to start, and uh, and the Pope Francis, hopefully, you know, setting the tone, uh, as it were. And um, and then as I entered seminary and kind of read more about popes in the past, like Pope Gregory, Pope Saint Gregory, really uh, drawn in inspirations from their writings, especially the reading that's given to um, given to us in the liturgy hours. The uh, the second reading for today comes from his homily on Ezekiel. Where he's really reflecting on himself, like man, I'm I'm really struggling here as pastor. You know, I'm saying these things, I'm not really living them. And he kind of gives the reasons why he envisioned that his life would be very monastic because he was a monk before. Now he's got the burdens of administration and and he has to deal with people who are not godly. And so he kind of catches himself in idle chat. And I said, man, I'm doing that every day. It's nice to know that this saint, this pope, struggled the same things I'm doing. So not only setting a tone for maybe what the spiritual life also. But also some consolation that 
man, he struggled too. So it's not like it's, you know, just do this and you'll be fine. Like he says to do this and it wasn't always fine. He had his struggle too. And so I, I guess I find that reassuring that if he struggled and he's a saint, it's possible for me too. I think... Father Nagel. I think, yeah. Father Lewis is such a baby. I mean, such a kid. I mean, I... <laughs> I was thinking the same my, thing. <laughs> my, life, my, life, my life began the pontificate of John the Twenty Third. I didn't remember him, but I don't remember him because I was just an infant. But um, and I, Paul the Sixth for me was simply a name. As I think Father Lewis got it right as a kid. I, you know, I think I remember in CCD class people would ask me who's the Pope, and I think I could say Paul the Sixth. So I think I knew him as a name, um, and I do have this memory in my senior year of high school. Again, dating myself, um, the death of Paul the Sixth, and also then John Paul the First. Um, and other people talking about this. I, I was a Catholic. I went to Mass all the time, but I wasn't really into the faith. And so that idea that John Paul II uh, was elected that autumn, 78, I guess, 1978, um, I, I kind of remember it, but it didn't make any impact on me until I re- when I returned to the church in the mid-1980s, John Paul II was very instrumental. Um, for me, that reading about him. And, and honestly, it was a, kind of a team. It was John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger. And so in, in lots of ways, they were, um, I, I did follow their uh, writings and their decisions and their actions. I do think that Paul, John Paul II, not so much uh, Joseph Ratzinger, but Paul, John Paul II had an influence on my uh, vocational journey. Not, not directly like, okay, I want to be like John Paul II, therefore I'm going to become this Dostan priest. But I, I do think that he just presented an attractive attractive model of the priesthood and what it meant. So I do think there's that idea that, okay, he, you know, he was a great pastoral shepherd. He was a courageous person. He had a, a really interesting story, but with the Nazi regime and the communist regimes, you know, there's it, it, it a heroic element to him. Um, that I found attractive, like I think so many others, kind of the John Paul II generation. Um, and so I came of age and I came back to the church, I think, in kind of that, that plateau or that, that, that strong period of you know, late 80s and 1990s. Um, Benedict XVI, I, I, just, I just recognize as a holy man and, and, a, and a very learned man. And so again, I was always interested in reading what they had to say. Francis, Pope Francis, the last eight or nine years, whatever it's been, I think he's, for me, it's not so much you know, a direct model, but he certainly has uh, provided uh, points of, of uh, reflection for me in terms of my own priesthood of, you know, what could go wrong with it? What, what you know, am I, am I in fact uh, living it out well? As, as Father Lewis said, that, that reading today for Gregory the, the Great is, is a great, he's talking about himself, but it's, all, every priest and bishop, I think, can, can read that and, uh, and feel the, uh, feel the uh, uh, conviction coming on. And I think that for me, you know, Francis can sometimes be like that, saying, okay, it's a good check on saying, okay, am I, how am I living out this priesthood? Um, do I smell like my sheep or not? Um, and so, uh, so I, I think that I think the popes has, have great influence for one way or the other, you know, um, because... Think of any other religion or any other form of Christianity, and there's nobody, none of them have somebody like the role of the Pope. Um, there's this sort of personification of um, the church and how, it's, how, how we're supposed to live that uh, no matter who the person is, again, for better or worse, it's, there's always going to be a huge impact, I think. So uh, I, um, uh, a question, this is a little different question. Um, I would like you to um, um, make a case that there is a pope that ought to be um, explored more fully, a pope that is underappreciated mm. uh, in, like, you know, through their life, through their writings, through, uh, and maybe you've, you've experienced some of that in your own life. Um, and so I'm not talking about uh, popes you've experienced, like John Paul II or, uh, or Francis or, or Benedict. But in the history of our church, is there a pope that you would say, you know, boy, when I had a chance to read his life, look at his writings, understand the decisions he made, how he shepherded the church, we ought to really like dig into that one some more. There, there's, there's 
a lot of gold that is just left there buried. Is there someone that comes to mind for you, Father Nagel? That's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, here I, 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 what came to my mind as I was listening to your question being put up um, is a, it's a, a pope who's already canonized. So in some sense, you might think, well, um, he's already recognized, so we don't need to pay more attention to him. But I would like personally, and I even looked at it, I didn't really find the right book, but I'd like to know, know more about Gregory VII. Um, and the reason I say that is, uh, I think he is in some ways a, a pope for our times. Um, he, he was, a, Hildebrand was his name in, in, uh, before his name Pope, and he was a great reformer of the church. And the, the reforms he was trying to, to make, he wasn't a perfect man, but, uh, but he was, a cra- I would say, a courageous shepherd in the sense of, and sometimes he made some kind of you know, rigorous decisions, et cetera. I'm sure that there's, there's ways in which you could um, second guess some of them. But I think the idea of, A, uh, standing up for the church against secular powers and trying to fight for the independence of the church against the secular um, regimes of the times. Um, the famous Canossa incident when Henry IV, the emperor, was, was left out in the snow, uh, basically waiting and asking for absolution and uh, to be allowed into the, back into the church by Gregory VII. Um, so the whole idea of church versus secular age, how do you deal with that? But also the reform of the, of the clergy in terms of chastity and celibacy. Um, that, again, he was this great reformer, and, and he recognized that there was corruption uh, both in the relationship between the church and the world and the kings of, of Europe, but also in terms of their interior life of the clergy. So I think that Gregory, there was a heroic element to him. He ended up in exile. You know, he, he was, uh, it, so I, I think there's something to be said for sort of digging up some of his, that, that whole uh, Gregorian reform of the 11th century and, and re, reexamining that. I can have two popes that came to mind immediately. The first is one who's already being uh, discovered more and unpacked and, and uh, originally given a bad rap, I think, but that's all being corrected historically. And I think that's Pope Pius XII. You know, we've gone from within, within, you know, the last, the, the second half of my life so far, you know, it was still the prevailing thought that he was Hitler's pope, that he's uh, going along to get along kind of a thing. And now, you know, historians digging up that that's all a bunch of nonsense and that was uh, a lot of that may have been propaganda, but he he was instrumental in all kinds of things, undermining uh, Hitler's efforts and, um, uh, I think I, I think they even found some correspondence that suggests that he was actually con- um, conspiring for his assassinations in one of the assassinations. Well, I'm not sure a pope ought to be doing that, but uh, so maybe it's swinging the other way. But but I'm, I'm glad that the that history is correcting itself. But another one that I would like to see that happen for or unpack is is Blessed Pius IX, just by the significance of his situation in the context of history, because. That was a tremendously tumultuous time in Europe, and therefore the remnants of Christendom going from like the Napoleonic eras, and then he he you know he lives uh, during that time, and his pope maybe toward the end of those uh, those wars, and into the beginnings of communist thought and modernity and the Industrial Revolution, and and by the way you know the papal states you know taken from him, so he's made himself a prisoner of the Vatican, which was the attitude of the Vatican for like the next century or whatever it was. And um, I'm not sure how much he may have taught, but to explore his life more, like how he endured that. Clearly, the church has recognized something heroic in him insofar as he's blessed. And um, and I think he's uh, and he's the longest serving pope. I think it's like 35 years, more than St. Peter and St. John and Paul II. So the longest reigning pope, and, and therefore he's, he's, he's had to have had a, quite an impact. And we should explore more what his impact is. So it's interesting. I... I was expecting you, Father Lewis, maybe more than Father Nagel, to identify a pope that uh, neither of you said. And I think when I say the name, you could probably come up with five reasons why this pope ought to be um, explored more fully. And it's Leo the Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. And so you think about like what is Pope Leo the Thirteenth known for? Well, what? Rerum Novarum. Rerum Novarum, right? <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So like a founding, like a launching pad for the church's social thought. Well, what else? Well, he was so aged. I guess it's uh, something that's interesting. He was elected so late with the idea that he was going to die soon so they can kind of help them regroup, but he died at like 94 or something. So <laughs> he... I, I also think father... he... I'm sorry. 
Go, no, Father, I, I was going to say, there's, there's other elements in terms of the, the Holy Spirit and the devil, mm-hmm. and in the terms of that whole context, I know as well. Well, he composed the St. Michael prayer, I believe, and right. inserted it into the Mass. Yeah, right. so yeah. The, these are the things that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of, he has that uh, a powerful, beautiful encyclical on the Holy Spirit. He was the one who led the Church into uh, the, the 20th century, um, you know, brought them right into, uh, you know, praying for that century of come Holy Spirit, you know, veni crater spiritus, down upon that century, recognizing that it was going to be this battle between um, the church and, and Satan, um, the St. Michael prayer. And then he uh, he has the title for writing the most encyclicals on what theme? Uh on Mary, I think. On, on the rosary. On the rosary. He wrote oh. seven different encyclicals on, on the rosary and or on the Blessed Mother. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? So I, I just think that he has, like, he covers such a swath. And then he had to shepherd the church after the, you know, in that historical moment, after Vatican I and the whole papal state situation. So the, his, the historical moment in which he was operating was also really, like, incredibly challenging. I, well, he followed yeah. right on the coattails of Pope Pius XI, I believe, or Pope Pius IX, and uh, and so they're they're you know the history that they share together by that fact is just you know I almost went with Leo XIII on the history alone, but but I so I, you I actually went the other had, way. You had Leo the Thirteenth in mind, <laughs> third place, really? Hon- oh, honorable oh, mention. Oh, interesting, <laughs> Father I, Nagel, what were you going to say? Well, I do agree. I think he 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 has a kind of a one-dimensional reputation in terms of Rerum Novarum. I I think that that's I think that's a good point. And it, it is a crucial period of the church. So I would agree with you that, that, that a, a nice full life study um, would be a, that'd be a great book to read. Yeah. Well, uh, interesting question. All right. So when we come back, we're going to uh, continue on. We have this uh, seven deadly sins to cover. Um, and I'm going to just put in one quick word of encouragement for folks um, around Pope St. Gregory the Great. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernan with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis, and we're um, going to get to our third book club edition of the program, talking about Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. But just an encouragement, I um, one of the things that um, we, the, the three of us that have had a chance to study theology, um, had a chance to study church history. And, oh, by the way, one of the three of us here has a PhD in history. That would be Father Nagel. And Father Nagel... I know how inspired I became by reading the history of the church. And in one of my courses, I uh, did it through the history of the papacy. Mm-hmm. So beginning in the late Middle Ages down through the the Catholic Counter-Reformation, we covered every papacy. Uh-huh. And it was so fascinating. It was so interesting and, uh, you know, giving like a, just an, an appreciation for where we are today because of the gift of um, the history that has been left behind. Um, so just one, I'd love for you to just take a minute and encourage folks to um, not just think about learning your faith through studying doctrines or engaging in devotional and spiritual practices, as valuable as those things are and fundamental. What about reading history? Why is that important? I think, first off, it just gives you context. It gives you confidence and context in some ways. Uh, for for the the present time, um, I always you know if you don't if you don't know history you're you're an amnesiac uh, you, you don't you don't know understand who you are you don't know your identity, and so I I do think that the history gives you a, again a deeper context for the the goals and sometimes the sins of Catholics in the in the Church, and so I, I do think that uh, in, but also it brings you confidence in the sense of wow. Um, this is not just this one parish that I've been part of or this one bad experience I may have had in, um, in a larger Archdiocesan context, whatever it is that's you know, rocking your boat at a particular time. Saying this, is, this really is a history of God's people over the thousands of years. Um, that this, this group, institution, whatever you want to call it in your own mind, uh, what happens when you go to Mass on Sunday, that this, there's a, such a huge reality here. Um, this is bigger than the United States of America. This is bigger than you know, anything else that you're part of. 
um, if you really think about it uh, with the eyes of faith, that history gives you that the largeness, uh, the depth, uh, and the context of your own individual story with God. And so it allows you to recognize that, well, I'm, I'm part of something great, historical, and really eternal. Uh, and so I do think reading history, um, church history, I read it all the time. I, I, it's something that I, that I think is important in terms of you know, being able to preach, for instance, um, and for my own spiritual life. So I, I do encourage you to um, go deep into church history. Um, find out who we really are. Find out who you are. So, and I just think about like crucial moments. So we think of Gregory the Great, Leo the Great. If I said, okay, this is a little test, Father Nagel. I, I'll see if Father Lewis gets this. Okay, so what is the, what is that historical moment, the face down that Pope Saint Leo the Great had? I know. Go ahead. Let's hear it. <laughs> he faced off with Attila the Hun. Now, isn't that just cool to yeah, hear about yeah. that? And then when you know you read the account of it processing out, and they meet in this tent, and what happened in there, and and all of that. The, uh, the altar for Saint Leo in in Saint uh, Peter's Basilica has depicted of, of that moment. It's it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I doesn't I, this gives me a sense of like encouragement. So this will be the harder one. So what would you say, Father Nagel, uh -oh. is the? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was saying. Uh, I said, uh oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I remember when Pam used to not like these questions. If I'm ready for it, go for it. Okay, so what's the face down in the life of Pope St. Gregory the Great? And it wasn't against an enemy of the church. I'll give you that little hint. Well, I do know that the famous story is when he, 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 uh, he sends out the missionaries to England. Um, but if you're not talking about that... That's what I was talking about. Yeah, so yeah. he is the one responsible. He sees the, the English slaves in the slave markets of Rome, and he says, and he asks who these, these angels are. They're probably some blonde um, kids, probably. I don't know how old they were. But they, somebody said they're angels, and he said, no, they're angels. They look like... And they were, he was told, they, but they're pagans. They, never, they haven't heard of Christ. He said, well, we need to do something about that. And so... Augustine, he sends off a, a, you know, a couple dozen, three but a dozen monks to go convert England, and they, they do. And yep. so he's the great um, you know, spiritual father of the English church. And didn't they, um, didn't they, they made two trips. The first trip they went, and they kind of, they got afraid. And so they came back, and then they got sent a second time. Well, what happens, they, they were marching through Gaul, France today, and they heard, started hearing rumors of how really kind of ferocious these pagan uh, English uh, were. And so they started to think, well, this may not be a good idea. So they stop and they send a letter back to Rome saying, you know what, uh, from, our, from our sources here, this, we may have misunderstood our situation here and, and maybe we just need to come back and rethink and regroup. And, and Gregory said, no, just get going. Stop, stop stalling, get going. And so they, they kept on going and it, was, it turned out well. But I mean, I've used that story I've used that story in terms of sometimes people who have second thoughts about their vocation, what I think that, you know, it's, it's not a matter really of discerning a, a true fear, but it's, it's, it's a, you know, nerves or something like that. I said, you know, it's time to go. Um, don't, don't, don't worry about the rumors. Just you know, do what God, do what you're sent to do and it'll be fine. And, and Father Nagel, you mentioned, I, I liked how you just so quickly and easily said, history gives you context and confidence. And I think that in this moment, boy, it would be a, a real blessing for more, for more Catholics to gain context and confidence regarding what we're facing as a church today, as compared to, for instance, what Leo and Gregory both experienced. Uh, if you had to sort of map out those times, where would you rather be living, Father Nagel? Well, if I was talking about spiritual life, now, you know, if you're talking about physical life, um, I, you know, 600 AD is not a great time to live. <laughs> but if you're talking about your spiritual situation in terms of the church and the secular world, I think there, there's some truth to this. I mean, I think Alistair McIntyre, in, uh, you know, After Virtue, a famous philosophy book, he talks about this. He puts our, he puts our age in, into the context of the age of Gregory and Leo the Great, which was the, the fall of Rome and the dark ages that followed. 
you know, we would say, well, technologically, it's not so much a dark age, but it's a dark age in terms of certainly of the faith as it, as it starts to crumble, but also of just the confusion and the kind of the collapse of of institutions. And, and so I, I do, the dark ages that, that Gregory was in, the fall of Rome, the disappearance of the empire, uh, the Germanic uh, tribes and peoples coming in, what you saw were the losses of institutions um, and, and how things worked. And I do think there's some, there's some truth to that. And whether you're talking about marriage, you're talking about the family, talking about the nation, whatever you're talking about, I do think that we're, you know, we can see ourselves. That's where the underlying anxiety is, you know, the, the idea of um, we are in this age of transition and it doesn't seem to be a good transition. So I, I do think there's some real, there is some real connection there. Yes. So I think that uh, with that said, uh, we are ready to go. So, um, okay, so in the, uh, we're now in the second part of this book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, the, com- the Cosmic Struggle Between Good and Evil. I do encourage you, if you have missed uh, the first two programs where we had a chance to cover this, um, you can go check them out. You'll find them on mycatholicfaith.org, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and look up Dr. Tom Curran Podcast, and they're listed there. I think we also, there are links to them on sacredheartradio.org. I think that um, the, the book club programs have been, at least for a time, held uh, there as well. So several options for you all if you want to um, get access to these book club editions of Sound Insight. So in Christ vs. Uh, Satan in Our Daily Lives, in the second part, um, Pope, uh, Pope, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> Father Robert Spitzer, he, he's talking about the way in which the devil works and is battling um, uh, it, against our spiritual lives. And he then digs deeply into the deadly sins, and he ends up breaking them up into two major sections. And, um, and so we're going to take a look at those. Um, and I'll look to you, Father Lewis, at the beginning. Is there anything that you want to say about the Actually, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this out because there's a really good section that just identifies what are deadly sins and why are they so imp- uh, important to understand. It's on page 262 at the bottom. And this is um, actually where Gregory and St. Thomas Aquinas are mentioned. So I'm going to read it, and then Father Lewis and Father Nagel, would you um, please uh, reflect on it? In the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas defended and commented extensively on Gregory's list of sins— enshrining it with the foundation of Christian moral teaching. He showed in the Summa Theologica that the deadly sins, what he terms the seven capital vices, lie at the heart of all sins because they are corrupt interior attitudes that orient human beings to false ends, non-loving objectives of life. When we pursue these false ends, thinking that they will make us happy, we are led into a myriad of other sins violations of commandments in our pursuit of these false ends. And then there's a long quote that I, I won't read. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit about that, about the, what is like a, a deadly sin or a capital sin and, and uh, in the way that, uh, that Father Spitzer uh, re- reflects on it here? Well, what caught my eye, um, eye and ear uh, the first time we read this and then just now as you're rereading it is um, they lead us to... Um, orient human beings, they orient us toward false ends. And so, you know, um, and I'd heard this many times in many ways, like in seminary and elsewhere, that, you know, you'd, you'd be very hard-pressed to be able to uh, perceive anyone, or let alone ever meet anyone, who would actually choose the evil purely for the sake that it's evil. Uh, that would be a particularly sick person. Why do we choose to sin or why do we choose to give to, to give into temptation is because we have perceived that there's a good. So if I choose to commit gluttony, one of the seven deadly sins, um, then what is the good? Well, you know, I thought I was hungry at the time. In fact, I like to joke with my parishioners sometimes, that'll be the epitaph on my tombstone. I thought I was hungry at the time, and um, but I ate too much. And um, so, you know, there is a good there. F- food is morally neutral. It's just an object, and but it can be used for the good purpose of nourishing our bodies. And so why? So that we have energy and sustenance to be able to continue work and so on. Uh, but we can take that to the false end of we just keep going and going. There's no temperance there. And so the false end was beyond the true end. It was like breaking through the wall of the true end to some further end that was false. And so there's nothing, you know, St. Augustine calls evil the privation of the good. It's like the absence of the good. 
And so, or like a warping or a mutation, um, a deliberate disfigurement of the good. And so eating food is good, but eating it to the point of gluttony has warped that good and, and therefore has made it not good. And so anyway, all that kind of comes to mind with this idea that uh, these sins, these temptations to sin, um, they tempt us to, to pursue a false end. I was struck by, and you mentioned it, Father Lewis, somewhat, but um, we think they're going to make us happy. And so it's, a lot of it's just, we have, you know, what's going to make me happy? Uh, I think that's such an important question. And he comes back to the false ends being non-loving objectives of life. Um, and so obviously he's saying the objective of life is actually love, uh, loving. And that's kind of the key piece. It, it sounds cliched almost, but... Um, if we recognize that, well, yeah, but that's, that's the question that's involved in all of these bad decisions and life choices that we end up making, that it, we, we have to get right. Who are we? So if, if we want to understand what's going to make me happy, first I have to understand me. Um, who am I, the, the, the Christian anthropology of the human person, and love's relationship to the human person. So uh, again, that, it goes back again to that idea that you have one, we have one objective in life, which is union with God, who is love itself. Um, so I, I just think it. sometimes we think of these sins as rules or the moral life as rules when it's really just coming back to the idea of, no, we're made for love and that's our happiness. And the rest of it is, um, is, is just bad, bad decisions. Well, and there were two elements of this that I found really helpful. The first was, um, I had always understood that the seven deadly sins are capital sins. Capital means a source or a head of other sins. And, and I got that, right? So if you're going to commit the sin of gluttony, it's going to give rise to an inclination towards other sins. Okay, I get that. But he did it. He, he said it was because of the false ends. You know, gluttony is all, and we're going to get into that, but gluttony is all about eating for the sake of the pleasure involved rather than eating for the sake of the nourishment involved and enjoy the pleasure. So you're, you're flipping the means in the end. And, and it was like by means of the final cause. I, I really liked that. I really liked that because it talks about if, if you have a, a wrong vision or goal in mind for your life, it's going to cause you to act now in the present very differently. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's a really... Like I do a lot of coaching and I'm helping like a lot of like leadership teams be able to like move forward in life. And, and I, I constantly am reflecting that on them, but I never connected it to the deadly sins. And the second thing was that he talks about this in relationship. The context of this discussion is with regards to Satan, mm-hmm. that it's Satan who is really clever as the father of lies regarding planting us to say, you see what you think is just a fruit or a means? It's actually, no, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. Let's just, one simple reversal is going to completely undermine the good that is being offered to you. I just thought that was like, wow, I didn't reflect on that sufficiently. Yeah, now that you phrase it like that, that's that's interesting. And, And on the gluttony example, like, I can imagine, at least for me, maybe I have a, maybe I'm being too self-divulgent here. I'm uh, uh, revealing too much of myself, but, but uh, Satan could tempt me to gluttony by saying, yeah, 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 nourishment is good. That's absolutely true. You're going to get nourished anyway, so aim for the pleasure because the nourishment is coming along with it. And so, you know, not even that pleasure is bad, but he's, he's tricked me into believing that that's more important than the nourishment of, 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 of uh, eating food. And, and that's another that's another lie. It's like mixing the lies with the truth. The both are good, but the lie is which one is is more good? Which one is gooder? And uh, you know, and so I've I've treated the final cause. What is the ultimate aim and end of this of this endeavor of eating this enterprise? And and I've made it pleasure, even though there can be pleasure in eating, and not nourishment. Even though if I seek pleasure, the nourishment can also follow. So it's subtle. It's kind of like forty chess, and I'm losing. <laughs> <laughs> Other Nagel. Well, I. I think it just is kind of illustrated in the temptations of Christ by the devil, um, you know, in the desert. Uh, he, the devil uses these really powerful, you know, means, the, 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 having all, you know, having all the power of the world and, and all these sorts of things that the devil offers him. Um, they're not the end. I mean, how many of us think that they are? And that, you know, most of us aren't going to try to, conquer the world or try to, to have all the kingdoms of the world. Um, 
but we do put means and ends in the wrong order oftentimes. And as you say, it's just so dysfunctional that we don't even, it's so common that we don't really recognize that, wait a minute, that we have to trace this back to what is my goal? Who am I? What's going to make me happy? Um, so uh, again, I think the Spitzer just lays it out in kind of new, refreshing ways. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I found it uh, a little bit like, um, uh, oh, he's getting into his systematization when he talked about, here's why I'm doing the list the way that I've done them. Mm-hmm. I was more accustomed to sort of a traditional, they're done from like least bad to worst. And Father Lewis, you should be really comforted that if <laughs> the deadly sin that you struggle with the most is gluttony, that's the least bad of the deadly sins. <laughs> you're doing really so you're well. So actually, you're actually showing us how holy you are. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I struggle with sins that are much, much higher on that list than, uh, than gluttony. So <laughs> not that I don't also struggle with gluttony. Um, so you're actually showing us how holy you are, Father Lewis, <laughs> inadvertently. But so, it wasn't done in a proud, prideful well. It was, it was very honest. So. Oh. But I was very, I was very like, I was struck in pride that you, <laughs> that you revealed that. So you're actually leading me into sin. Thanks, oh, wow. Father Lewis. I, I don't think that's Father doing. Lewis's problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Um, is there anything else that you all want to bring out about the sin of, of gluttony? I'm going to move us along kind of quickly because I want to get through. I want to get up to the, to the worst of these bad sins. And I'm not sure how many of the seven we'll be able to get to. But is there anything about gluttony that you want to draw attention to, Father Nagel? No, I, 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 I do think we have time issues here. So I, I don't think so. I, I think that... Um, most of the people listening in here probably struggle with gluttony, like all of us. Uh, well, not everybody, but, but lots. But I, I, I do think it's not just the least, but I think it's the one that we probably understand more than some of the other ones. So I, I will skip. Yeah. The, uh, the one little sliver, again, of insight that I thought was like really interesting is he basically is saying to us, look, it is so unworthy of you mm. to live a gluttonous life. Like, do you realize how animalistic this is? to just like go after like base pleasure in eating as like a dominant focus in your life. Like, like a cow eat, eating his, her cud, you know, it's just, yeah. imagine a cow chewing in cud. That's, that's, that's a gluttonous person. You know, it's just, as you say, bestial. Yeah. Yeah. Leading to superficiality and a subordination of ourselves to mere food. <laughs> Kinda of like, could you really be tricked by that? I mean, we can get tricked by other things, but that, so yeah, yeah. So that's that's that one. Um, the the next one up in these deadly sins, and and just to say, he does um, he links the first three together. Um, he he links greed, um, gluttony, greed, and lust. And uh, I'm going to just say it very very simply. He links them three together be, through the concept of desire. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt not covet. There's that fundamental thrust of desire that's in our lives, and that manifests itself in deadly sins, in these, especially in these three deadly sins, as desire, base, you know, in, in the first one, animalistic desire, and then we're going to go further into a different kind of desire in greed or avarice. So, um, Father Lewis, I think it's your turn. What was it about greed that jumped out at you? Well, I noted on our, on our book, page 270, um, is there any way out of the seduction of greed? So he's, you know, the greed as such, he, he goes into a couple of paragraphs and he's starting to look at how can we understand this and how can we get out of it? There is. And what is greed, first of all? There's greed, a, really, yeah, a, so, a great quote at the top of that page. Uh, well, and, uh, well, he begins right away, too. Um, uh, greed is grounded in excessive worldly desire, uh, so it's related to gluttony in that fact. Um, and then, uh, let's see, how does he define greed specifically? He, qu- he quotes Aquinas, Greed is a sin against God inasmuch as man forsakes eternal things for the sake of temporal things. Yeah, 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 there, yeah I just found that. So uh, that's what greed is. We've, we've surrendered uh, the eternal rewards that await us and what God wants to give us. Well, we're looking at the temporal things, and it's a sin against God because God wants to give us A, but we don't want that. We want, we want B, and, uh, and to, the, to an excess for its own sake. Um, so there's a crisis in meaning. He says, there's any way out of the seduction of greed, there is. A crisis of meaning, emotional, existential, economic, relation, relationship, family, and community crises. As many saints have noted, crisis can be the best thing that ever happened to a person because it causes a rethinking of life's meaning, fulfillment, and destiny, which in turn can lead to the discovery, or in many cases the rediscovery, of the goodness of love, family, integrity, and God. And so what I think there, you know, 
you know, back in the you know the late twenties, the economic crash of the stock market and everything, and and uh, well, maybe even more recently, the housing bubble burst. How many people uh, may have been tempted to suicide if they didn't actually commit suicide because of the wealth that they lost in those economic crashes, and that was what they hitched their entire lives to uh, life to. Like that was that was their that was their one. That was their thing. They were kind of one-trick pony. I'm good at wealth and managing it and and accumulating it. And now it's gone. So what is life all about? So that moment of crisis, Father Spitzer seems to be saying, is not a bad thing. It is a thing. Now, how are you going to use it? Are you going to use it to plunge into despair or use it as a tool to reassess what life is really all about? And I've shared this with some parishioners and other folks, too. Sometimes sometimes I personally was actually cheering for a second-grade depression back in the housing bubble burst, because I really think that something that ma- that massive would really kind of shake us out of our societal and cultural malaise and to get us to th- rethink what's truly of importance. It's not whether or not this celebrity or that is doing this or that. Who cares? Who cares about those things? Like, you know, what is important? Where is your relationship with God? Why do you not even believe in God? And what what is your family situation like? Do you have friends? If the internet were to go down and we can't access Facebook, how many people are just going to be like banging against the wall, lost and confused? We got to maybe have something like that to to engender a crisis to get us to rethink. That's, I guess, why that spoke to me so so strongly. Father Nagel. Well, that whole idea of the crisis and, and the opportunities there. First of all, I... I I think one of the th- this this uh, sin this capital sin for me the the greed one really he does a good job of using one of the techniques that he wants to do is is to go to literature or film and and use examples that people who's reading who are reading this might know certainly the Scrooge and the Christmas Carol um, but there's there's other elements too there's the Wall Street there's Gecko and Wall Street you know there's there's some other ones there's um, well I forget some of them but. I, I like I do kind of like the way he does that. I, I, I enjoy his use of, of literature and film in terms of illustration. I do think because I do think that for greed it really points this out. Everybody knows Scrooge. Nobody wants to be Scrooge. Uh, but crisis comes you know crisis comes with enlightenment. And I would agree with you, Father Lewis, in the sense of I think if we are looking at Gregory the Great in his time, we're thinking of the collapse of Rome. We're thinking of trying to pick up the pieces afterwards, where the Bishop of Rome was the only authority left standing in the city, probably because it's just a mess. Um, that if you looked at the spiritual strength of people, I don't. Th- I'm not sure it has this direct correlation with how things, how good things are, and how prosperous. That in the good times. That the spiritual life is really great, but when things go bad, then it's really bad. I don't think it's just kind of like the inverse. So I guess I would challenge me at myself and everybody else in terms of the current time to say, okay, so if things are getting tough, if things are getting anxious, if things seem to be going in a bad direction, does that mean my spiritual life's growing? In fact, is virtue growing here? Because all these other false options I've been banking on all these other these these sins that I've been, you know, pushing, is the crisis. Am I at least going to be enlightened by what my true good is? Uh, the, the rest of the things are going to fall away. So anyway, I think there's an opportunity here, even in terms of our, our current situation. Going well, back, this is it's such a fascinating conversation because um, it, I I marked the same exact paragraph that you read, Father Lewis, as like the striking thing, which was that a crisis is a gift. And yet, how many of us would say, please, Lord, give me more of those gifts, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I used the phrase a couple of weeks ago that I was listening to a, um, a talk to young people and how young saints, their basic message was that misfortune is a better good than fortune for growing in holiness. And yet, um, if I said to, to, to an ordinary person, if I said to myself, Tom, would you rather have misfortune or fortune, <laughs> right? Like, you know, do you realize both? Um, lotteries are over 300 million right now, mega billion and Powerball, right? I, I would rather have that fortune than the misfortune of losing my job, losing my uh, income, losing my financial ability to take care of my family. Mm. It's like, it, it, but am I even uh, practicing that virtue of indifferentia? Like, am I, am I open and ready to receive and be received into fortune as readily as I would be into misfortune? And the answer is, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. It, and so this reflection on greed is 
super helpful for Americans. Just I'm going to say for Catholics who happen to live in America, because we are so surrounded by the comforts that money brings, that it's very, very, very difficult for us to imagine that there's a greater good that would come from misfortune and financial crisis. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a, I know it, it's not like a new insight, but boy, it is, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing to wrestle through it. You know, that's a, an incredible example, the big example of would I rather have millions and millions or I'd rather lose my house and job. And uh, even that can sound like so much theory. I might challenge others. I might challenge myself, like, could I even go one night without the central air in the rectory on and let the house get cold? That's a misfortune. Could I even go one night with that and see the spiritual fruits of being able to offer that up? And I don't think I could or even do that. Or would you grumble and yell and just say, how dare these people do this? I pay good money for this. I deserve that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing how soft we are. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> See, no wonder Father Nagel wants to be a Carthusian. Uh, no, just give me I'm, my little I'm, cell. I'll sleep in my coffin. And you got your own little I'll uh, make stove myself. there. You got, your, you got a wooden stove there. It's, it's really quite cozy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to have to cherry pick among the deadly sins. So, uh, Father Nagel, you're going to pick among the deadly sins that you'd like among the, the remaining six. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. And we're talking about Father Robert Spitzer's book, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives, and focusing in on the what he identifies as a list of eight deadly sins or capital vices uh, that um, lead us towards wrong ends in life. And so, Father Nagel, we've had a chance to talk about gluttony and greed. Where would you want to go from there among the, the remaining ones? So I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do a one, two quick um, two quick ones. I think that we, I think that we have to at least touch upon lust for this reason. Lust is perhaps the most prevalent deadly sin in contemporary Western culture. That's that's uh, Spitzer's talk. I think it's huge. I do think there's, I any Father Lewis, you know from confessions, um, this is just this just compulsion. It's addiction. It's uh, and it ruins relationships. So lust ruins relationships. Uh, certainly marriage and other, and other relationships. And so he goes into. Um, Anna Karenina is the, is the topic in terms of, of lust and, and the idea of the, thir- of the third and fourth levels of happiness. So he goes back to some of his old stuff um, talking about, but I just think the idea, we sometimes think of it as, well, it's a sin and I'm going to go to hell or I'm just compulsive. But it really just recognize it ruins relationships. Um, lust in relationships can't endure. They can't coexist. The other thing I think I was thinking about is just with sloth. And I was just thinking about that just in terms of um, this is something that I think, uh, I don't know, he uses a room with a view as um, this idea, but it's, it's decadence. I, and that's what struck me from that sin that he talks about. Um, the, the, just the decadent nature of sloth where it's just, I'm just not going to bother anymore. Um, it's not worth it. Uh, I, I think that's another one of these deadly sins that we're looking at that maybe we don't really recognize. That I think there's a lot of that, that sin around us that the idea of decay. So again, those are two things that just jumped out at me that I wanted to say before we were done. You know, Father, I might uh, kind of disagree with you a little bit. You think you you, you project that lust is maybe the the most dominant sin in our Western culture? No, and... Spitzer does. I just said Spitzer said. Oh, that. Spitzer does. Okay. Well, I might disagree with him too, if I dare. But I mean, I, I agree with that. But I think maybe a close second, if not an outright tie, would be sloth. Uh, because you know what what you know people well what is sloth well let me let me put it to you in another way meh you know apathy it's like you know I, I think of like how many how the struggles of trying to get people to at least be open to the possibility for example of becoming Christian and I kind of categorize them into into, into three atheists you got like your emotional atheists well God did this and and I hate him now and it's very emotive or the intellectual atheists like you know I've disproven the existence of God in this manner. And and I would rather contend with either of those because at least you can have a point of connection for a conversation. But then you go to the cultural atheists where, what do you think about God? Meh. You know, there's no, there's nothing there. It's it's emptiness and it's air. And I think that's an aspect of sloth maybe where they just can't even bother themselves to ask the question. They're that kind of spiritually and intellectually lazy. And 
and disenfranchised or whatever, and they can't even they can't even form a, a real word. It just comes out like meh, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, you know, th- that was kind of my response to those two things. So it's it's interesting. Like lust is out there, that's for sure, but maybe more disguised, but just as prevalent as is is sloth, I think. So it's so interesting you did that, uh, uh, both of you fathers, because. I was going to ask the question, among the eight deadly sins, which one is least appreciated as actually being really, really, really prevalent and dangerous today? And my answer was going to be sloth. Yeah. Um, I, and I actually wrote down a different book. Uh, I, I put down Walker Percy's Movie Goer. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah. But the um, Binks Bowling, the, the main character, is just, he can't be, he lives in a gray world. It's yeah. just... You get exhausted reading the book. Walker Percy's brilliant in putting forward a life that is just meh, just yeah. lacking in color, verve, or any sense of I, I, the, I, I was made for God and for spiritual goods. And when I get severed from that vision, then life becomes so gray. And anyway, so I, there, there's a contrasting character in there, which is uh, his nephew who suffers in, in a wheelchair and offers up his sufferings for, uh, for, uh, for the salvation of sinners. And he just drops that little character in there, mm-hmm. the person who is living a, like a life of spiritual like heights, who is the character who seemingly should live the most blah life of all. It's, it's brilliant. But boy, it, you get exhausted entering into the existential situation of a person of sloth. So, if there's no um, goal to life. And even sometimes, you know, I think our age, other ages, they can get the wrong goal. You know, somebody's a fervent communist or Nazi or something. The idea that, yeah, there's a goal. It's not the right one, but, but it's a goal. I think our, our problem today is, it's, I don't even think there's any purpose. So what's the, the meh, you know, I, I, there's nothing, I'm not, there's no reason for me to get up much. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I uh, I wish we could have uh, two hours for this program, but we have 30 seconds left. So, oh. good fathers, you each have, uh, well, yeah, about 20 seconds each to, to give a final comment on the book. Well, maybe I'll uh, comment on the book. Uh, again, I think we said this last two programs, but uh, definitely worth reading. There's a lot here, but it's very accessible, I find. And, and maybe if today's discussion kind of sparks some kind of a self-examination, like, don't be afraid to go to confession and bring matters up with the priest. You know, you've heard from Father Nagel and myself, like, I don't know any priest is going to just, like, you know, start ripping you apart because you did this. Like, everyone is struggling with any uh, manner of these temptations and sins, and so we're all in this together. So to get thee to confession and, and, uh, and reinvigorate the prayer life with that grace. And I would say especially what we partially cover today, we never fully cover anything, but um, the, the deadly sins section in the second half of the book, I think it's worth the price of admission, so to speak, in terms of, I think it's very accessible and I think it'll, get, it'll be eye-opening for lots of people. It's a good sort of examination of conscience for us. So um, the book's definitely worthwhile, definitely worth reading. And you don't need the quartet, you don't have to read the four no. volumes in advance, and you don't even need to read the second volume, even though it's an amazing volume as well, where it goes into the sacraments. Uh, in. But this book is, yes, uh, there's so many rich, rich, rich sections in it. All right, folks, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, God bless your day. Join us. Join me tomorrow for more Sun Insight.